Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedi. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 60,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. Kevin D. Randall, back in the early 50s, we didn't talk about Roswell or crash retrievals that much. But there was a book out 1950, thereabouts, from a variety columnist, a gossip columnist, called Behind the Flying Saucers. What picture of crash retrievals in New Mexico did this paint? The problem is... Scully, Scully originally uh, published a couple of columns in Variety about crashes, uh, I think as early as 49 or 48, 48 or 49, and he, and he placed them in various locations. He, he got hooked up with Leo DeBauer and uh, Silas Newton, two con men, and put together the book called Behind the Flying Saucers. Now, what's interesting and, and, and nobody really talks about is the locations of the crashes in the book are significantly different than the crashes in his column. So he's changed the story at that point. But behind the flying saucers, which talked about the crashes in Paradise Valley, Arizona, one uh, in, in New Mexico, at Aztec, New Mexico, which even got a mention in Time Magazine in January of 1950. So you've got this idea of the UFO crashes, and you've got a book out about it. And a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle took an assignment from True Magazine, and True Magazine was a men's magazine in the in the 50s and 60s that um, dealt with exposés, dealt with uh, uh, topics of interest to men. Not a men's magazine like Playboy with naked girls in it, but but a magazine that that dealt with topics that would be of interest to men. Well, it was and True Adventure, it was treasure hunting, it was stuff like that. Yes, exactly, or war stories. There were, there were three of them. There was Argosy, there was Saga, and there was, um, there was True. And Parenthetically, Argosy, by the way, Saga had a UFO magazine that I wrote for. Uh, as did I. Okay. Probably but, around but, the same time. In the 70s, <laughs> and we haven't gotten there yet. Argosy had one, too, as, as a matter of fact, and True had one. They all had UFO magazines in the 70s. Okay, so back as to the, Frank Scully and the kind uh, I need to talk to. As we, as we divert around the corner. Uh, so True paid J.P. Kahn money to to find out about uh, this this UFO crash in Aztec, New Mexico. And Silas Newton's running around and he's got little pieces of metal he claims is from that. And and J.P. Kahn figured out a way to, to get one of the pieces of metal to have it analyzed and discovered it was uh, poorly grade aluminum, which uh, you wouldn't expect a UFO to be made out of. But what Kahn did was he talked to the people, he found out who this do mysterious Dr. G was that was involved with Scully's book which is Leo Jabauer, who was a um, TV repairman in Phoenix, I believe it was. And he published the expose in True called uh, Flying Saucers and the Little Green Men, I think it was, in 1952. And what this did was so thoroughly trash the idea that there had been, been UFO crashes, whether it was in uh, Aztec, New Mexico, or Paradise Valley, or Phoenix, Arizona, 
that nobody in the UFO community wanted to talk about that. So if a story surfaced about a UFO crash, it was immediately dismissed as being bogus. Nobody wanted to do a thing about it. So what Scully's book did uh, was not open the door into a research into UFO crash retrievals. It closed the door for for 25 years at a minimum until Lynn Stringfield came along and started doing that sort of research. But, but Scully's book ended anybody talking about UFO crashes or crash retrievals in any kind of serious vein for 25 years. Okay, so Leonard Stringfield, of course, we talked about a couple of three weeks ago. We had John Carpenter on the show, and he was discussing some of Leonard Stringfield. He collected a lot of military reports because of his background in the military. A lot of people came to him. He got some information about crashes. And is he one of the pioneers who brought the New Mexico crash case to fore? Len, Len had been gathering what I would call, I guess, anecdotal tales of, of UFO crashes for years. And, and most of these were single witness without any, any good corroborative evidence. But he, he was collecting those, and what he wanted to do and what he did do is at the, I think it was the 1978 MUFON convention, he did a paper on UFO crash retrievals to talk about these things that he had found. About the same time, Jesse Marcel, who was the air intelligence officer at the uh, base in Roswell, had been talking to friends of his, he was a ham radio enthusiast, and he'd been talking to friends on the radio about having picked up pieces of a flying saucer. Stan Friedman is in... New Orleans doing a, 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 a television program, and the station manager says, there's a guy you should talk to, Jesse Marcel. So Friedman talked to Marcel, called Len Stringfield, Len Stringfield talked to Marcel, and Marcel began to talk about how he picked up pieces of a flying saucer, he said, in the late 1940s when he was at Roswell. But he didn't remember the exact date. So what they did was initiate a search of newspapers, and as you all know, the... Um, First of the, the flying saucer tales began on June 24, 1947, with Kenneth Arnold talking about it. Within two weeks, you see Jesse Marcel's picture on the front pages of newspapers all around the country holding up what allegedly is a piece of, of uh, debris from a flying saucer. We now know it's, it's part of a Raywin radar target. But, but that opened the door to Roswell because Jesse Marcel was at Roswell and you could find people who had been there. You could find people who remembered parts of the story, people who would corroborate it. So now you no longer have a single witness tale. Uh, you have a, a story told by uh, one of the highest-ranking officers at the base at the time, and you can corroborate it through other high-ranking officers at the base. I talked to Edwin Easley, who, at the, who in 1947 had been the base provost marshal, think chief of police there, and he told me, that uh, as we, we, could, we talked about this thing, I finally asked him, I said, are we following the right path, meaning uh, about chasing the flying saucer? And easily said to me, what do you mean? And I said, we think it was extraterrestrial. And he said, well, let me put it this way, it's not the wrong path, in essence telling me what, what fell at Roswell was extraterrestrial. But this, I guess, serendipitous uh, coincidence with, with Stringfield collecting the reports of crash retrievals and Jesse Marcel surfacing, providing the, the window of opportunity to learn more about crash retrievals, kind of blew this whole thing up starting around 1980. Uh, Stringfield's report came out in, in 78, and, and, and then Len did a series of status reports on, on other information he had learned about crash retrievals uh, 
in, in subsequent years. But this kind of blew up the whole thing so that more people were talking about it, and it, and it, because of the Roswell case, it, it lended an air of credibility to this idea that, that if there are flying saucers, then there may have been crashes, and the government may have, may have retrieved it, and we had some very good information leading us in that direction. So basically, Roswell languished all those years, partly because of the impact, the negative impact of the Frank Scully book. Suddenly, everything comes to the fore, but it's over 20 years later. In, in essence, yeah. When, when the Roswell thing happened in 47, the uh, Air Force, actually the Army Air Forces at the time, moved very rapidly to say, well, yeah, they made a mistake. It was a weather balloon, and, and, and they show pictures of Marcel with a weather balloon. There's a picture with one of the uh, officers at... Uh, Fort Fort Worth, with with the same debris in the same same uh, same office, with at a slightly different time, hold uh, taken in '47, and and nobody really talked about that because this story was buried brilliantly in 1947. If you were a reporter in 1947 and you wanted to call Jesse Marcel, who lived in Roswell, New Mexico, who off base, who had a phone. You couldn't find him because he wasn't there. He was in Fort Worth. If you wanted to talk to Mac Brazel, the guy who'd found it, he, he lived on a ranch where there was no phone, but you couldn't find him anyway because he was being held by the military in 1947. Everything was shut down, and they, and they gave this plausible explanation. Well, they made a mistake. It's a weather balloon, and everybody went away happy. So Roswell was gone. There were mentions of it. Subsequently, Frank uh, Edwards did a book in the mid-1960s called Flying Saucer Serious Business. He mentions Roswell um, in, in the book, but he gets almost every fact wrong other than it happened at Roswell and the Air Force explained it as, as a weather balloon. So you know what, you mentioned that for a second with Frank Edwards, and now Frank Edwards, of course, was a network radio broadcaster, and he had who, several books on UFOs. What did well, he get he, wrong? Well, he he said that uh, the, the, they showed a picture of an officer holding a, a a kite with a pie tin attached to it, which of course is wrong. He got uh, other details like that wrong. I mean, but he's, he only puts in like a paragraph or two paragraphs in his book, in a in a chapter that talks about pieces of them, and he goes on from that because he doesn't have a lot of information about it. He just mentions the Roswell case and the fact that the the, the government had re retrieved it. But but the important point to remember about Frank Edwards is he did a number of books. He had been a broadcaster for the Mutual Broadcasting Network, which which at the time was the equivalent of NBC and ABC and CBS. I mean they were they were it was a big big time radio network. And he lost his job for talking about UFOs. He kept talking about flying saucers, and they told him to stop doing it, and he wouldn't do it. So he lost his job doing that. But then he did a number of books about uh, about flying saucers, including Flying Saucer Serious Business, where he mentioned this briefly. There were other mentions to the Roswell case at the time, but but nobody could really get a handle on it until Marcel surfaced, and Marcel gave you the date, the exact location, put you in contact with the people in, in Roswell, and we discover that there was a yearbook that had been done by Walter Hott, who was the base uh, public affairs officer in 47. So now we have, a in essence, a list of names of everybody who was there in 1947. And as we begin to talk to the staff members, and, and by that I mean who who the senior officers who were on Colonel Blanchard's staff, Colonel Blanchard being the commander of the, of the base there, we learned from every one of them that something very unusual happened, with one exception. He said, no, it was nothing to it. It was a weather balloon. We just 
we're just we just made a big mistake. All the others said, yeah, there's something going on here. So that opened the door to Roswell. And when you start start to accept the idea that, well, maybe one of them crashes, are there other circumstances where we can do similar things? Can we get a list of names? Can we find multiple witnesses? Can we find stuff in the Air Force files? Uh, can, we, can we corroborate some of this stuff? And it turns out there's a number of cases through the years that, that kind of meet that criterion. There are others in which you have a single witness telling a story, and sometimes the story are, stories are just absolutely preposterous and you ignore them. Sometimes the stories match the, the Aztec, Paradise Valley, uh, Phoenix, Arizona crash that Frank Scully talked about, where you, you couldn't get a handle on anything uh, at the time to, 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 to corroborate that sort of a story. So you look at, look at all of that kind of stuff, and you, and you find out we have this serendipitous meeting of, of the information in, in 1978, 1979, 1980, and that kind of opens the door to all these investigations into crash retrievals. So, Kevin, you're, you're describing a situation by where um, Roswell presumably sets a precedent for cover-up uh, on the part of some faction of our military, some portion of our government. What about other places in the world? Do we see similar coordinated efforts uh, in other countries? If we look at the history, we can, we can see similar things in, in, in Great Britain and in France back in that, in that era. In, in today's world, we see Great Britain opening virtually all their files on UFOs to anybody who wants to look at them. Um, Nick Pope, who had been in the defense ministry, and I had a chance to uh, talk to him about this, says that, that virtually everything that the British government had on UFOs is now available online if you, if you can get to the right websites and access the information. As you know, the PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 60,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of the PowerCast, Audio is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One book to consider, for example, is Above Top Secret, the worldwide UFO cover-up by Timothy Good. Timothy Good, as you know, has been a guest on the PowerCast for this this book or another free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free Whois Guard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name 
specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Namecheap, where we host many great contests, or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash Namecheap. See you online. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Kevin Randall. He's author of a forthcoming book called Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. Okay, so a lot of this information on the Internet, but I guess the key question here is what, if anything, does it appear that the British government held back? At, at this point, the British government seems to have been very forthcoming in all their releases of UFO information, as has the French government. I think the Brazilian government has, has uh, uh, let out an awful lot of the information. So, so in other arenas, we, we see an awful lot of information forthcoming about it. With the United States government, we can take a look at things that have transpired and see that they have not been forthcoming. And the best example of this is Project Moondust. Moondust sort of took over when Project Blue Book closed. Project Blue Book was the official Air Force investigation. They closed it in 1969. So if you'd call the Air Force and say, well, I have a UFO site, and they say, well, we don't, we don't do that anymore. Call the sheriff if you feel threatened. Uh, call NICAP, uh, which is what, uh, a civilian investigative organization, or call MUFON or somebody. But just leave us the heck out of it. Well, what happened was, in the course of doing FOIA, Freedom of Information request, somebody stumbled upon Moondust and requested information about Moondust and discovered that Moondust had a component that looked at UFO sightings. Moondust was a government investigation of returning space debris of foreign manufacture or unknown origin, which of course would be UFOs, unknown origin. But they're looking at if something fell back back to Earth that might have been a Soviet satellite, can they gain any intelligence value by, by retrieving that? But part of Moondust's mission was also UFOs, and you can see in the Moondust documents that we've now got our hands on that that was part of the mission. Well, in 1986, the name Moondust was compromised. It got out to the civilian world, and any number of uh, filed photo requests getting information about moon dust and one researcher robert todd learned that that uh, moon dust name had been changed the project hadn't ended but the name had been compromised and he got a letter from someone when he filed a for request saying that the name is the new name is classified and properly so and, and you can't know it so so we know that the u.s government has been doing ufo investigations post-1969 uh, when they closed Blue Book. We know that the investigations are classified, and we, we've been able to retrieve some of the documentation to show this. And then we go to the 1990s, and once again, Roswell rears its ugly head, but the Air Force begins to investigate UFOs, and, and specifically uh, the Roswell case, and say, well, there's nothing to it. We looked at all this, and in 1947, we said it was a weather balloon, and we looked at all the information again, and we, we decided it was a uh, weather balloon. But this time they put the name Project Mogul on it, and they uh, published a myth that Mogul was so highly classified nobody knew what it was, and the guys working on it didn't even know the name Mogul. But if you look in the Air Force documents, you find a, a, a diary by Albert Crary, who was the, the, the leader of Project Mogul. The, the balloon launches in New Mexico, and he uses the name Mogul in his diary. So clearly he knew the name, so the name wasn't classified. Pictures of mogul balloons being launched were in the newspapers in the days following the Roswell case, so so it wasn't the whole mission wasn't highly classified, but but they've got this idea out there now among the well, general public. Kevin, public. Kevin, I just have to ask a question about that. You're saying that there were pictures of the mogul balloons appearing in newspapers identified as such. 
at the time? Not as not as Project Mogul identified as balloon launches from in New Mexico. One of the pictures yeah. has a ladder in it. And Charles Moore, who was part of Project Mogul, told me that ladder he had bought with petty cash when they were in Alamogordo, New Mexico. So the balloon launches are in the newspapers, and and we've seen them. I've got copies of pictures of them from an El Paso newspaper, from the um, uh, Carlsbad newspaper, the Alamogordo News. I got them from the Alamogordo News, and I've got them from a Syracuse, New York newspaper. So the pictures were released. What the Air Force was doing, or the Army Air Force at the time was doing, was setting up the alibi. Mogul wasn't that important, but they've convinced people this was a highly classified project. Nobody knew what was going on. They were using specialized balloons, which they weren't. They were weather balloons, so anybody would have recognized them. They, they were attaching radar targets to them, which anybody would, would recognize that, that had any any experience with this sort of thing. And the big difference was, instead of one balloon and one radar target, it was a series of balloons and a series of radar targets, as if that's going to fool anybody. But yes, the pictures were in the newspapers. They were identified as balloon launches from Alamogordo, New Mexico, where Mogul was being launched at the time. The only thing they didn't do in the newspapers was call it Project Mogul, but Dr. Crary's diary identifies Mogul as what they're doing. And at one point in, in late 1946, before they go to New Mexico, he writes down, the mogul equipment has arrived. So it's not this big secret project like everybody would like you to believe. It was something that was not highly classified. They were, they were down there launching balloons, for God's sake. They were required by the CAA, the forerunner of the FAA, to publish notices to airmen and note them, saying they would be launching these big array balloons because this, this array could pose a hazard to aerial navigation. Mm. So the launches were announced through a, a public arena. The guys at Mogul had gone over to Roswell to ask for the help of the officers at Roswell because they wanted help tracking their balloons. And the guys at Roswell blew them off, you know, a bunch of college boys with their stupid experiments. We've got important military stuff to do. So, so it's not the big secret that, every, that the government would like us to believe today as an explanation for Roswell. Well, we had to cover it up. It was Project Mogul. It was this highly classified project. Well, no, it wasn't. Okay, so that was their excuse about hiding this. But now when we look at Roswell, though, in 2010, is this the end of the investigation pretty much now? We are running out of places to go. The witnesses are dying because this was 1947 so we're talking a long time ago and and they would have been military personnel for for the most part so they would be in their 80s the the, the local ranchers uh, would have you know similar circumstance they're now in their 80s some of them in their 90s Loretta Proctor is like 700 years old at this point she was a, a neighbor of Mac Brazel and, and saw some of the debris that Brazel brought brought to her to look at so we're running out we're running out of witnesses we're running out of places to go what we have to do now is is search the government files government archives in search for something that, that relates to the Roswell case. Some things have been found. Brad Sparks found a uh, FBI telex from 1947 talking about the balloon explanation, but it also says telephonic conversations with the people has not borne out the balloon explanation. So we we're finding some documentation that relates to it from official sources, but that's where we have to look now, and we have to we have to expand our search into that. I spent uh, years 
trying to follow the paper trail when the Air Force decided to reinvestigate in the mid-1990s. And it just ran, it just ran full course. We, we know that the Secretary of the Air Force was involved. She involved, involved a number of people. I tried to get copies of the minutes, any records, any reports, any uh, orders that had been given. I was told to, to go to the government printing office, like they're going to have these files that I want, because the government printing office had, of course, printed the, the Air Force report, but pro forma, I went to them, I said, we don't have those records, we just printed the document, you might try here, you might try there, eventually got to the National Archives, they said, we don't have it, uh, try the Air Force Archives at Maxwell Air Force Base, so I tried Maxwell Air Force Base, they wrote back and said, no, we don't have it, we sent it to the National Archives, and I wrote back to the National Archives and said, you guys got it, according to Maxwell Air Force Base. And, Mac, and, and the archives said, oh, yeah, we do. We'll, we'll get back to you on that. And what they, had, what they had was not responsive to my request. It was nothing that I really wanted. But it just shows, you know, in three or four years, it took me to follow all those places. We, we eventually got nowhere. So there, there is a repository somewhere with these documents. There are notes somewhere that we could find that would give us a better clue. We, we've relied on the witness testimony and it's taken us as far as we can at this point. We're now talking to people, uh, you know, what we would call second-hand witnesses. In other words, their fathers, their brothers, their husbands were involved in some fashion and they told the story to the family. But, but at that point, we, we run into the problem of interpretation and what exactly was said and what sort of contamination has gone on since, since the, the big boon in, in uh, Roswell information in the 1990s. So we, we've run the course, I think, pretty much at that point, and we now have to look for the documentation to, to back up uh, what we believe to be the truth. Well, there's another big issue, too, which, of course, is the alleged wreckage. So if we've got a crash-flying saucer, we've obviously recovered this wreckage, that would have to be in a laboratory somewhere still. It's not being kept yeah. in Warehouse 13. So wouldn't that would, imply an active 13? level of research? Does anybody else besides me get the reference to Warehouse 13? <laughs> well, Warehouse yeah, yeah, 13 is on the Sci-Fi Channel. It's, it's a where, Sci-Fi Channel it's a, program, yes. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. a Sci-Fi Channel program about a place somewhere in the Midwest in a secret place where they store All incredible, advanced, crazy artifacts found around the world. And then they go out and, and, and if something's leaked into it or something shows up, they go out and try to get it back before the world learns about it. The key is, of course, did they just stuff this stuff away or is there an active research? I mean, it could be like Independence Day where, of course, for years and years you had scientists secreted away as depicted in that science fiction disaster movie and they were busy trying to tear apart this alien spacecraft. Is that what they might be doing? Well, I, I, I want to preface by saying my favorite line in any movie is in that is in Independence Day, which is is that glass bulletproof? But what I believe would happen, of course, you pick the stuff up. You you realize at the very moment you find it that here is a technology that is far superior to anything that we possess. If we can decode it, we suddenly take a huge step forward in front of our competitors in the world at the time. It would have been the Soviets. We can learn an awful lot from that stuff if we can figure it out. I'm not sure that we have been able to figure it out, but the research would continue. And every time our technology takes a step forward, we apply that technology to what was recovered at Roswell to see if we can figure it out. But it would be akin of taking a DVD player, a portable DVD player, 
back to medieval England and, and showing it to Merlin the Magician, you, you've got a nice silvery disc, and if you know the secrets, you can get pictures and sound of it. But you've got to understand an awful lot of our science to be able to duplicate that, and he would not have been able to do so. And so I believe that the Roswell craft is that sort of a technological leap that there are things about it we don't understand, but the answer to the question is yes. It's being looked at, they're studying it, they're trying to figure things out about it. But I think it's a technology that is so far beyond us that we have yet to figure that out. I mean, if, if, even if you went back to 47 and you scattered some CDs around the desert, well, you know, it, to the mind of 1947, a CD would look like a silver coaster. You, you don't realize that there's pictures and sound or, or images or whatever on that thing that if you know how to access it, you can get that, in, that information out of it. And, and think of the information storage on one, well, a, a DVD as opposed to a CD or a thumb drive for crying out loud, a little dark stick that you plug into your, your computer or, in my case, plug it into my car, and you can get all kinds of information. Uh, out of it if you know how to do that but you've got to understand an awful lot of stuff before you can get to that point right actually I, somebody somebody in the 40s who would be studying let's say a dvd would actually be able to put it under a microscope and see the tiny little grooves they probably would arrive at a conclusion of it being some sort of a data format they probably they wouldn't be able to read it they wouldn't be able to uh, decode it but my guess is that with the 1940s microscope, they could certainly look into the substrate surface and they could, they could come up with a reasonable assumption that they were looking at some kind of data encoding. The point you make is a point, Kevin, we've made on the Paracast before in terms of taking a laptop computer back 150 years, where uh, there are multiple levels of abstraction there that anybody analyzing the thing would have to figure out, not the least of which would be power supply. Uh, uh yeah. you know, how do you, how do you power the thing? But j just to, Something that's always bothered me about the Air Force's handling of the Roswell situation has been these uh, many years later. I mean, it's years after the fact, they keep releasing these new explanations into places as inauspicious as the New York Times. Now, why, in your opinion, would they do such a thing if indeed they were just basically trying to sweep it under the rug. Why keep bringing it up to the media? They don't bring it up. We did. The explanation is we're treading on the truth. They don't want that truth out. They've got to do something to stop the investigation. They've got to do something to divert attention. And, and that was the purpose behind the, their, their mid-1990s investigation, was to come up with an explanation. And they don't care how believable it is as long as they can get it out in the public and they can start talking about it. And if you, if you go back to 1997 when you had that Air Force colonel standing in front of a group of, of, of reporters talking about the anthropomorphic dummies dropped by balloon launches in, in New Mexico and, uh, and, and the, the one closer to Roswell was in 1957, and coming up with this explanation, well, people found these anthropomorphic dummies, they thought they were seeing something extraterrestrial, and their minds have confused the time, and they've, they've moved back to 1947. The reporters in, 1940, in, in 1997 didn't buy that explanation. They're laughing at the guy with this 
idiotic explanation. He's looking uncomfortable. He's looking as if he doesn't believe it. And here we are in, in 2010, some 13 years later, and people now bought into that explanation. Well, the Air Force explained it in 1997. No, they didn't. They came up with another preposterous explanation, but it was better than the idea that there could be extraterrestrials on, on planet Earth, or we've been visited from, uh, from outer space, and, they, and one of their craft crashed. That's a much better explanation for an awful lot of people than the, uh, I mean, the idea that, that this was anthropomorphic dummies and, and weather balloons is, is a much better explanation than we've been visited by extraterrestrials. People are buying it, and, and, and they're now talking about those stupid explanations with a straight face as if there is some kind of legitimacy to them. They kind of expect that the memories are short. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or a colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial this is the paracast with your hosts gene steinberg and david bietney you never know what's going to happen next We have Kevin Randall. He's author of a forthcoming book called Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. Now, returning back to 1947, 1950 and thereabouts, and the original Frank Scully book talking about UFO crash in Paradise Valley, Arizona. And I'm about 10 minutes from there, by the way, so maybe I should go do some investigation. And in Aztec, New Mexico. Any truth to any of this? No, no, not at all. There's, There's... There's never been a shred of evidence to suggest anything in those places. I've been to Aztec, New Mexico. I think I've driven by Paradise Valley, um, Arizona, on my way to Mesa so I could go look at the, for the lost Dutchman, but that's a whole other argument. If you go back to, to the 1970s, 1980s, and you talk to people in Aztec, they say, no, it never happened. There was nothing there. It was a mistake. We don't know what you're talking about. In today's world, they've seen the success of Roswell, and now they have a very successful UFO symposium in their little town as well, bringing lots of people and lots of tourist dollars. And so now a lot of people buy into the Aztec crash, but there's not a shred of evidence. And some of the witnesses who have been cited in various books as having been there and talked about the UFO crash when you find those witnesses, they're saying, no, I never said anything like that. I don't know what you're talking about. But but the Aztec crash has been around since the 1950s, and I know there was a big big flap in the mid-1970s when a guy named Robert Spencer Carr had come out and said, well, I've talked to a number of witnesses, and they said that the Aztec UFO crash is true. Mike McClellan did a story for Official UFO, which was a magazine in the 1970s, called the UFO crash at Aztecs is a hoax and explained all of this stuff. And, and others have done the same 
same thing. There was a book in the 1980s called The UFO Crash at Aztec, where they explore all of this again. But the witnesses cited in the book, when you talk to them independently, do not seem to corroborate what was said in the book. So there's, there's, some, there's some trouble with all of that sort of thing going on. But, there, but I have found nothing to suggest that Aztec is legitimate. And, and as I said, I think it's January 9, 1950, Time Magazine published an article. And, it, and it's basically a story about the Aztec crash, although I, although I don't believe they mention the name Aztec. I think they say New Mexico. But you can tell from the details what they're doing is talking about the Aztec crash, and they're talking about the Scully story, the Frank, Frank Scully story. You can say, well, Time Magazine talked about it, but they didn't really investigate it. They didn't, and they, they, they just reported the facts that they had about what others had said. But I have found nothing to suggest there was a, a, a crash near Aztec, New Mexico. What may have happened, and it's purely speculation on my part, is that some of the information from the Roswell case had leaked into a public arena. We know that they were talking about it in 47 for, for three or four hours before uh, the Air Force said now it was a weather balloon. But I suspect that some of the information about Roswell may have been transferred to Aztec, and I don't know why they selected Aztec, New Mexico, other than it's kind of a neat name, Aztec, New Mexico. But I have not found anything to suggest that there there's any legitimacy to the idea of a crash in that location. Just very quickly before David gets his question, very quickly, how far apart are Aztec and Roswell? 250 miles, 300 miles, mm -hmm. something like that. Aztec is um, north of Albuquerque. Roswell is three hours south of Albuquerque. Uh, Aztec would be an hour and a half, two hours north of Albuquerque. So they're, you know, it's a big state. Well, you're, you're in Arizona. You know that the states out west tend to be a lot bigger than the states back east. So, Kevin, given what you're saying, you go to uh, AztecUFO.com, you see this huge amount of information. Frank Scully's name prominently featured in terms of the lore of this. A meta question for you. At what point does a researcher, somebody who writes about this topic, reach a threshold after which you essentially discount them as a source of information. I mean, what you guys are saying about Frank Scully sort of makes it sound like uh, there, was, there wasn't a UFO story he didn't like and, and, and uh, ultimately write about, and the act of writing about it in a complimentary way essentially supports it. Why are we still talking about this guy if apparently he was involved with uh, a whole lot of stuff that didn't happen? Uh, it's kind of an ignorant question. Yeah, I'm just we wondering. Have, we have to sort of insulate Frank Scully here. Okay. I think Frank Scully was fooled. He talked to Silas Newton. He talked to Leo G. Brower. They were feeding him the information. He believed what they were telling him. Who was so feeding Frank them Scully, information? What, was it a situation where these two guys were being instructed to lead Scully no. down a bad path? No. No, no. I think th these guys were eventually... Um, convicted of fraud in the state of Colorado for claiming to have rediscovered the Rangeley oil fields and they, they had come up with some electronic gizmos to help find oil. And, and according to some of the information is they had come up with this flying saucer connection to lend credibility to this, this electronic stuff that they had. You know, it's, it's, it's some kind of advanced technology that we, that we got from this flying saucer crash. So it seems to be that they, that they were attempting to use the flying saucers and this notion of a flying saucer crash as a way of adding credibility to the electronic gear they claim could, could locate oil underneath the surface. So, so wait a minute, what you're saying is that uh, Stephen Greer picks up ideas from earlier ventures. 
Hence his whole Orion project, free energy that from the UFO crashes. I mean, it's kind of like there's no there's no original sin here. People keep basically playing the same game over and over. That's what I'm hearing. Okay. You may, you may not want to comment on Greer, but it's the same kind of a well, thing. The no, guy basically. I've had I had I've had my big fight with Greer too. Uh, yeah. When when I suggested he ought to at least vet his witnesses so we know whether or not they're legitimate, I got a nasty letter from an Air Force colonel who claimed that he had been in his message center, communication centers, one of the one of the officers on duty when the story of a UFO crash had come through, and these were classified messages talking about a flying saucer crash. And I said, Yeah, I've got the messages. I've got them classified. The declassified versions of the messages. I've got them. The story was a hoax. The Air Force colonel's telling the truth. He did not know what the eventual outcome was, that, that mm-hmm. we all learned it was a hoax. But anybody who had studied UFOs for more than 10 minutes would have known that that these messages this colonel saw were, in fact, the messages about the Spitsbergen crash of 1952, which started out as a Russian craft and eventually evolved into an extraterrestrial craft. <laughs> and, and the whole thing was a hoax. The newspapers quoted in a number of the articles don't exist. And, and, and here we go to Frank, Frank Edwards again, who claimed that he'd talked to somebody in the Norwegian uh, defense ministry, Spitsbergen Island belonging to Norway, and saying that, that, the, uh, that, that they had investigated and it was all true, but the guy that Edwards supposedly talked to never existed. So we, we've got all of that sort of thing. So Greer gloms onto this Air Force colonel who's saying, yes, I saw this message. And the Air Force colonel's telling the absolute truth because the messages did go through the, the, mm. the, the message center. They were originally classified, but we now know the outcome. And anybody who studied UFOs knows that outcome. So I've, I've had my fights with Stephen Greer, and, and, and he can really organize people and just inundate you with email. Yes, we don't want to get into that. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Kevin Randall, (laughs) and we're exploring crash retrievals, and we've talked about Roswell, which may be genuine, Aztec, which appears to be fake. Let's look beyond that, other cases that you've covered. Anything out there that is comparable to Roswell in terms of its importance? The the idea that UFOs crash is kind of a hard one to, to bend your brain around. But if you think back to your first computers and how crummy they were and you know, how prone to failure they were, 
and we're now into the in, in 2010, and they're they're much much better, and they they don't fail nearly as often, and the problems that you encounter are easy are often easily remedied. And you look at that in terms of space travel, that, that getting from wherever they come from to Earth is a very complex challenge. You would expect their technology to be of sufficient superiority that it wouldn't fail too often. Of course, in, in the world of, of, of the humans, even though the equipment is working very, very well, there's always the human who wants to make it work a little bit better and cause it the failure. My point being simply this, you would expect them to be able to traverse the distances to explore Earth or whatever they want to do and get home without a lot of accidents. If you take a look at some of the lists of UFO crashes, they top 300. It's like these things are raining out of the sky. And if that's the truth, they should be raining into locations where governments could not conceal the information we would know about it well maybe you assume by the way kevin that the alien race has the same problems we have with cost overruns and inefficiencies and poorly trained pilots <laughs> no i would not i would not presume to suggest human characteristics on aliens of course not and 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 well but, but, but think of it think of it this way from from a kind of a science fiction point of view would a species on another planet divide their planet up into uh, hundreds of little kingdoms that are at war with one another all the time? Possibly, uh, sure. Possibly, sure. but 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 maybe not. Maybe um, not, but we don't know. There's just there's no reference point for this. My point exactly. Uh, we yeah. don't know. Well, I'm going to throw another one at you, Kevin, and I have to do this. I got to okay. do this. All right. Why is it that when something is not our technology? It's instantly extraterrestrial. We don't know that, do we? If you mean something falling to Earth that I presume is extraterrestrial... It's a presumption. Based on, ...based on the descriptions of it and what it can do, I think the extraterrestrial explanation is preferable to some of the other explanations being offered, whether it's time travelers, whether it's some kind of interdimensional travel. I think the extraterrestrial meaning from another planet in another solar system, probably in our region of the galaxy, that, that is a preferable explanation. It is more likely than time travelers from our future. It is more likely than some kind of interdimensional beings coming to, into our perceived reality why why when you say that you say it's more preferable and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna, again throw this out to you from my understanding well but but let me just let me just make a point please my understanding yeah. of physics okay if you have figured out a way to reasonably move between star systems you have to be bending space-time to do this ergo you are you at are at the point where you now control space-time to be able to do this so this this human distinction between interdimensional versus time traveling versus interplanetary doesn't really have much meaning because if you can it well if you can move between star systems and have it not take tens of thousands of years I think by definition you're a time traveler and you're an interdimensional traveler it's how you basically do this and at that point the problem is that our understanding of our physical reality is simply the model's not great enough to incorporate this. Just isn't. I mean, this is where we're in unknown territory. I would say, I would say to you, then I would ask you this question. Mm -hmm. If I grant your premise, are you saying that the beings visiting us originated on another planet? It's a possibility, but we don't know at this point. It, like you said, you presume, and I'm agreeing with you, it's a presumption. We yes, don't know. Yes. But, but, but here's I mean, the I, thing. I, I'm saying in, in my perception no. of the reality, 
Mm -hmm. To me, the most logical explanation is extraterrestrial, meaning uh, a civilization, you might say, like, like Earth, where we've now figured out how to do, how to travel these interstellar distances, as opposed to a group of beings who originated in an alternate, alternate universe who have figured out a way of, of traveling into our perceived reality or time travelers from Earth's future, meaning humans from the future coming back to us. To me, the, the idea that they come from another star system is, it seems to be the prefer, preferable explanation, which does not rule out the explanations that you offer. I just say, to my way of thinking, and it's my way of thinking, that's a preferable explanation than, than time travelers from our future, meaning humans from our future coming back to, for whatever reason. Uh, to, to study what's going on and, and, and inadvertently leaving debris behind. And, and I've done science fiction stories that kind of incorporate those sorts of ideas into, uh, in, into the story that they're time travelers, they're interdimensional beings. But, but to me, the idea that the, the aliens are from another planet coming to visit her seems to me to be a much preferable explanation. All right, granted, you know, your theory is good as mine, but let's look at the efficacy of the report. So we're not having UFOs raining from the skies, crashing all over the place, but there are some crashes. So what are the ones that seem to have some credibility? I knew we were going to get there, finally. <laughs> <laughs> I will start with Shag Harbor in 1968 which doesn't mean it's any better than, than some of the others, but it's more interesting f for this reason. In 1967, the Air Force paid the University of Colorado $500,000 to study flying saucers. Presumably, they were going to look at the evidence and see if there was a reason to continue their investigation. So while they're having their investigation into flying saucers, something falls into the water near Shag Harbor. You would think that an investigation to study UFOs would want to know as much about the Shag Harbor crash as they possibly could. What fell into the water? Especially when you've got a lot of witnesses involved in this. You've got members of the American military involved. You've got members of the Canadian military involved. You'd want to study this case. The Condon Committee, the University of Colorado study, made a phone call up to the Shag Harbor area, talked to uh, a constable in the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police headquarters there, he said, yes, we've, we've got a report from a number of from teenagers who, who saw that, and the condom case says, well, we don't care anymore, and that was the end of their investigation. You'd think they'd have spent some of that $500,000 to get a little bit of additional information because had they done so, they would have learned that the witnesses were not limited to teenagers, but a number of the police constables saw the thing in the sky. There was actually a photograph of the thing in the sky. There was residue left on the surface of the ocean where it plunged into the water, and the Soviets may have been involved trying to trying to find the thing as well. So you got a lot of stuff going on, and all of this. Uh, Don Ledger and Chris Stiles, who who live in up the uh, up in the area, have been have been researching for ten or fifteen years, and they've got documentation to support it. So there's a very good case. Now, was it a flying saucer from another planet? I don't know, but something very mysterious fell into the water off Shag Harbor. There was a response by various military entities, and there's documentation to follow up on it. That's a very good case. Shall I go on? And, you know, looking at this one here, wouldn't we expect then that if this happened that they would have dragged something out of that area to, if crashed or tried to? Some kind of dredging operation? And, and the documentation reveals that. There were ships in the area for six days around that area. 
military ships, uh, civilian craft, possibly even a Russian submarine in the area, trying trying to learn what happened. Very good documentation on this on, on, on this whole thing. And Chris Stiles and Don Ledger have done an awful lot of work in, in, in documenting all of that. What they have been able to document, the documents they've been able to get, are much superior to the documents we can get from Roswell. So that's a very good case. Now, was it a, was it a craft from another planet? Don't know, but it, but that's one of the very, very real possibilities of, of it. So we've, we've got the Shag Harbor case. There was a case that's in the Project Blue Book files from 1962, where something was seen to explode in the sky from Las Vegas, Nevada, President Obama's very favorite place, apparently. There was a, a newspaper headline that says, Bring it Red Explosion in Las Vegas Sky, and it talks about this thing seen off west northeast of, of Las Vegas near Mesquite on the Utah-Nevada border. The thing was tracked on radar. The thing was seen um, in, in Utah, possibly landed near a place called Eureka, Utah, took off heading toward the west, made a big looping turn around Reno, Nevada, and then headed south toward Las Vegas where it was seen to explode. Very good case, radar uh, a track of it, multiple witnesses in multiple locations, aircraft crew members saw it. There's a, a long report in the Blue Book file from, from an Air, Air Force pilot that saw it in Utah. There were uh, commercial pilots near uh, Reno who saw the thing. So we've got an awful lot of good information. And, and, and in one of my very favorite stories, so I'm in Las Vegas checking this thing out, and, and the newspaper, uh, the Las Vegas Sun, brilliant red explosion flares in Las Vegas sky. I call the newspaper. I get a hold of a reporter, and I told her what I'm doing. And she said, yeah, there's nothing to, to that UFO stuff. And I said, well, the report was in your newspaper. And she says, well, you can't believe everything you read in the newspaper. And I'm thinking, well, that's a hell of an attitude for a reporter to have. I can't believe what I read in your newspaper. So I asked her about this guy who apparently was a photographer from the newspaper, and she says, I don't know him. He doesn't, he doesn't work here anymore. Uh, a guy named Frank Maggio. So I look in the Las Vegas phone book, and it says, it says, it says Maggio Photo Labs. And I'm thinking, got to be the same guy. Photographer mm -hmm. of the newspaper, now he owns a photo studio. Got to be the same guy. Called him up. Yeah, it was. Talked to him for a minute. He didn't really remember much about it. He just saw the thing in the sky. Talked to um, a member of the sheriff's department named Walter Budd, who talked how how they had been had they had been uh, scrambles, not really the right word, alerted to go out in search of a possible plane crash out toward the Mesquite area. And George Knapp in Las Vegas there says that he had a, he has a long interview with with uh, Walter Budd, and he's, he, for the last year he's been going to send me the transcript of the of the uh, interview, but he hasn't done it. But I talked I talked to Walter Budd, talked to a lot of these people, talked to the people in in. Uh, the Eureka Nephi area of of um, Utah about what they had seen on the same day. The Air Force has split this case into two two files. What they've done is the Utah end of it is done on local time, and the Las Vegas end of it is done on Zulu time. So what that does is make it look like it's two separate events on two separate days. But when you convert the times to all local time or all Zulu time, you find out the events are 16 minutes apart. It's not two separate events. It's one event. They're able to explain it because they've broken it into two different cases. One of them is... Uh, insufficient data. The other one is a meteorite, but but when you plug them together, uh, you know you don't have a you don't have a, a, a meteor falling for 16 minutes, and you don't track the meteors on radar. And in fact, there's even a general officer who who in in Colorado who um, was in the air 
uh, and, and asked the command post about what had just flashed by him. So it's a very good case from 1962 that suggests something very unusual happened. But what's interesting about it, we've got, if I've got all the facts right, if the UFO did fall out of the sky in Nevada, it fell on Air Force property because an awful lot of the stuff around um, the Las Vegas area when you get away from the city is, is Air Force gunnery ranges and it looks like the thing fell on an air force on an air force range i've actually got in in, in the book I, I there's a picture of of a piece of debris that came allegedly came i should say allegedly i shouldn't say it came but i got i got a, a picture of this piece of debris that allegedly came uh, from the picture came from somebody who said he, he had witnessed um, i'm not sure how reliable that is but you know I, I've, I've got the information so we go, we go forward with that the other the other good one and i go back and forth on what, on this one you know probably twice a day which is the kexberg crash from 1965 mm. and i'm not sure whether it was a let me put it this way it was an extraterrestrial object i'm pretty sure of that i just don't know whether it was a manufactured object because there's some very good information that suggests it might have been a bolide that fell but there's also some very interesting information and in a response by the military and a response by the state police and uh things going on near Kecksburg at that time frame that are very interesting and things. So so part of me says, well, it's probably a meteor and it was overreaction to it. And the other part says, well, I'm not really sure given some of the eyewitness descriptions that we have. And these are descriptions that came out not 10, 15, 20 years later, but came out you know, like 10, 20, 30 hours later from, from people being interviewed by the newspapers and their, and their stories being told in the newspapers. So if looking, looking at this, I, I think there's, there's four really good stories, which of course is Roswell, uh, Las Vegas, Kecksburg, and then Shag Harbor. And I would throw into the mix Yuba Tuba, which is near Brazil, where the thing was seen to explode in the sky. Bits of the debris rained down, and some of the debris actually made it into to um, researchers' hands in the United States, but there's a break in the chain of evidence that, that bothers me immensely. Uh, Peter Sturrock from uh, out in California has done some good analysis of that. That may may fit into that as well because we've got some very interesting um, information about the magnesium that was picked up out of Yuba Tuba. So I'd look at those as, as a really top-notch case. Now, getting back to the last case regarding the magnesium, one of the arguments made at the time, this came from Coral Lorenzen of APRO, one yeah. of the pioneer UFO organizations, was that the purity of the magnesium was higher than our science was capable of in any reasonable or possible fashion at the time. Is that a real factor or what? It turns out that there's there's a, a refining method that Dow Chemical was using in 1957 because they were they were trying to see how pure they could get the mag, get magnesium, and so it, it was a very costly process, very time consuming process that was able them to produce a magnesium that was almost 100% pure, minor minor impurities in, in, in it. So the question becomes, where would this guy in Brazil, and and the, and the magnesium came came from Brazil, and, and the chain of custody once it got into uh, Dr. Olivio Fonte's hands, and he was an Apple representative in Brazil. Once the magnesium came into his possession in Brazil, then the chain of custody to, up to Apple and some of their analysis is unbroken. Once we get beyond that, the chain of custody is broken again, and, and there's all kinds of problems with where the metal went and who had it and who did what to it. That's a whole other argument. The point being simply, there seems to have been 
uh, magnesium of an equal purity available at Dow Chemical, but but not in very big quantities, and it was highly expensive. So the likelihood that 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 is the source of this magnesium is highly unlikely. There was also a, a detected imperium of strontium in the magnesium, which would not be an impurity that that you would you would get in in the um, uh, manufacturer at Dow Chemical, so that would suggest that it was something else. Uh, so, do, yeah. do we know something about why Dow Chemical would be making this material? What was this material used for? This pure well, magnesium. Dow, Chem Dow Chemical was just trying to refine the the um, uh, to refine the refining process. Okay. Uh, and, and so it was an experiment to see how how sure they could make it and, and they and they did it with other things i'll tell you what we'll explore this in more detail on the other side of the powercast we have kevin randall author of a forthcoming book crash when ufos fall from the sky a history of famous incidents conspiracies and cover-ups and as you see we're going way way beyond roswell more on the other side of the powercast to automatically assume that everything is the work of an extraterrestrial intelligence, I think would be a mistake. To automatically assume that things that you can't understand are supernatural occurrences, I think that's a mistake. I think that because physics as a science is so imperfect that we may discover eventually that some of the more baffling things that we experience as phenomenon will later be described in very precise terms using tools which we don't have now which would but which will be developed later to give more rational explanations for stuff that is too scary welcome back to the paracast with gene steinberg and david yeti We return with Kevin D. Randall. We're talking about UFOs, crash retrievals, not just about Roswell. Now, loosely speaking, when it comes to objects supposedly leaving metallic fragments around, we go back to a case that also raises the eternal can of worms. In 1947, Maury Island. What do you have to say about and, that one? And I look at it in depth in the book because it's a fascinating story. I don't believe there's any 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 uh, extraterrestrial material involved in this thing, but it's a fascinating story and and it's kind of a a, a very sad story because two air force officers are, were killed investigating the case uh, in an aircraft accident as they were flying back. It had nothing to do with the case itself. It was just tragic circumstances that the the airplane crashed as they were returning to their base after their investigation. But one of the guys Involved in this, I guess. I guess the problem is it's very, very complex. Um, Ray Palmer was a magazine publisher in the 1940s and, and did a lot of science fiction, and he and he had a story uh, in one of the science fiction magazines about which was called the Shaver Mystery, which is about all these robots or the civilization inhabiting the inner earth and sometimes the, the bad things that happen to us on, on the surface were engineered by these, pe these people living in these underground caves, this shaver mystery. And, and people were wondering whether this was a science fiction story or was it true. And Palmer's kind of suggesting it's true. And once the, once the flying saucers came out, and Kenneth Arnold saw the, the first flying saucer in, in 1947, Palmer says, this is the proof I've needed that the Shaver mystery is real. Flying saucers from the inner earth. And one of the, one of the letters he had gotten is from a guy talking about how he had been in the Burma, China, uh, Burma India theater during World War II, and he, he had crashed his airplane, 
and he had stumbled into this cave and run into these run into these robot entities and and was successfully successfully escaped from them but he said that he had been involved with this with this uh, air reconnaissance squadron which I don't think many people know about. Uh, I stumbled across it because <laughs> it's it, it all serendipitous. I had I had requested some information about the 500th Bomb Group, the microfilm with their uh, unit histories on it, and I got the unit history of this first Air Commando Squadron, which was in the China-India-Burma theater during World War II. And so I knew something about this, and I was I was surprised that this guy in 1947 would be talking about this, in this letter to Palmer, so Palmer, of course, called to got in touch with um, Kenneth Arnold to talk to him about his sighting, and then he got a letter talking about this 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 stuff at Maury Island. But it turns out the guy who was involved in that was the guy that sent him the letter. I think it was Chrisman who sent him the letter. Oh, the infamous Fredley Chrisman. Yes, yes, who was also probably involved in the Kennedy assassination and all kinds <laughs> of stuff. But so when when he gets the letter about this 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 debris they supposedly found from a flying saucer that was in trouble, Palmer gets a hold of Arnold and asks him to investigate. So Arnold goes to talk to these guys, and he's not real impressed with their story. And he asks uh, another pilot, and and, and, is that uh, Captain Smith? Captain Smith. And I I was trying to think is his his name is the same as the the captain of the Titanic, but but E.J. Smith. And, and, and that was the captain of the Titanic, too, by the way. So he, he gets his friend, Captain E.J. Smith. And what is stunning Arnold is there's this mysterious caller who's telling him everything that's going on in the hotel room. And so, so Smith and Arnold spend, like, hours pulling the motel room apart to look for hidden microphones, and they can't find anything. And, of course, the leak is Chrisman giving it to everybody else. But Arnold doesn't know what to do, and he, and he had been interviewed by um, a Lieutenant Brown from Muroc Air Force Base, or Muroc Army Airfield in, in California. So Arnold calls him. Uh, Brown and Davidson, a captain, go up there to talk to it. They're unimpressed with the story. They look at the, de- the, the debris, and they say, there's nothing to this. Uh, and they're, they're going to go back, and their airplane crashes. So that adds additional mystery to it. And, and suggest something something really sinister going on that the airplane was shot out of the sky, which of course is not true. Two of the people on the airplane actually bailed out safely, so so there were people on board the aircraft who could tell them what happened. So it's it's a very complicated, convoluted story. The upshot of it is, Palmer is kind of organizing this thing. Chrisman, who is not the world's most credible source, is is feeding information into this, making all kinds of claims that that are never borne out. Chrisman's, Chrisman's association with the first or second air commando doesn't seem to hold water, even though in his obituary he said he'd received a distinguished service cross for his service with him in, in uh, war. But, but I can find no record that he ever got the distinguished service cross from, from the various ser- sources. So it's a convoluted story. The upshot is it's probably a hoax. And it was a hoax that, that uh, I think Ray Palmer probably knew was a hoax, but he didn't care because it was helping promoting his idea of flying saucers and the Shaver mystery. Kenneth Arnold was trying to do the best he could. He was out of his depth. The Air Force guys, or the Army Air Force guys who looked into it, realized it was a hoax right away and washed their hands of it as quickly as they could. The fact the airplane crashes are tragic, tragic um, coincidence. And that's where we go with Maury Island. One more case. What else? What looks credible? <laughs> no, the one bites the dust. Here's, here's the sad thing. Let me, let me just... Go back to it, sure. Here's the sad thing, and it's the same with Aztec. This thing, you cannot drive a stake through the heart of it. 
no matter how much information you, you have to prove it's a hoax, there's always somebody out there willing to believe it and figure it's a government cover-up. That's you know, what makes discussing this stuff so difficult, right? Because basically, bad cases don't die. They just wait for the next generation of people interested to arrive, not do their homework, and be enthralled by the same junk that was discredited 10, 20, 30 years ago. And it's not even a different generation. It's all we got to do is wait five or six years and you get new people interested in the topic. Right. And, and, and then, then we're right where you say. They don't do their homework. They find the, find some initial information and they say, they're excited. They say, oh boy, Maury Island, look, the, the Air Force, the Air Force, uh, investigated and it's, uh, and it's a really, really good case. And it's not. It's, it's, it's crap. It's now, very frustrating. Now, one of the subtitles of your book is cover ups. The other is conspiracies. And I guess cover ups imply is a conspiracy to cover something up but can we take that further in terms of conspiracies was it the fear to admit anything or possibly with roswell a conspiracy to hide information that they had recovered one of these things by definition uh if you've got two people acting in consort to for, to a specific goal you've got a conspiracy and 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 to my way of thinking the the evidence of the conspiracy is all over the place we can prove the Air Force tried to cover it up. It doesn't mean it was extraterrestrial. It just means the Air Force, uh, the Army Air Force at the time, tried to cover it up. You know, you've you got them issuing different statements from different locations at different times. And so clearly you've got a conspiracy to cover up what fell at Roswell. They maintain the conspiracy was to hide Project Mogul. I maintain Mogul wasn't, wasn't that big a deal, that there should be no conspiracy for that. We've got complete records from White Sands, so we know it wasn't a missile. If the Air Force could have found an experimental aircraft that had fallen near Roswell at the time, they would have trotted that out in 1995 with their explanation to, to, to explain it. So where we are on, on Roswell, you, it, it's either extraterrestrial, a mogul balloon, I shouldn't say either or, uh, or, or there's some other explanation that we haven't found yet, that we haven't gotten to yet. And so you're basically saying here that if it was a secret weapon of some sort, maybe we wouldn't say anything in 1947, 1957, or 1967, but when it gets to the 1990s, we'd say something about it. What possible technology from 1947 would have still been classified in 1995? What what possible experimental craft would they been 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 testing in 1947 that isn't considered uh, an antique by today's standard? Uh, I mean, you look at the the state of the art technology in 1947, uh, and 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 we're so far beyond that. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, in 1947, we're still talking about about radios with tubes in them, for crying out loud, um, as opposed to printed circuit boards. And and so there's there's nothing in the in, uh, the, the history that developed in 1947 that that we wouldn't know about today. We we know an awful lot about the various spy planes, for example, which were highly classified in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And we know an awful lot about that stuff. So there's nothing there's nothing that's classified been classified then for whatever reason that we wouldn't know about today. And had there been something like that, that would have offered a plausible explanation for what fell at Roswell, they would have trotted it out in 1995 instead of coming up with their weather balloon story again. Ha! 
Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Kevin D. Randall, author of a forthcoming book called Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. David, you are champing at the bit. I sense it. (laughs) All right. So what do you think, Kevin, about this idea that we have a bunch of crashes that happened early on? And and there's some interesting cases that, that we haven't talked about, like the Virginia case in Brazil. Um, but I don't really see that as a crash. Okay. What do you see it as? Uh, of, of a more of a, a close encounter of the third kind, but not not a not a crash. And, and, and in fact, I don't look at it in the book. I, I know there are people who are very excited about that case. I just I just have not been that excited about it. And and that's my opinion. I mean, it's just where I am. It doesn't mean it's not a good case. Doesn't mean it's a bad case. It just means I haven't been excited about it. So what's the most recent, I guess what I'm trying to underscore here is this idea that it appears, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the crashes have this period where they seem to be happening, and then they sort of stop. Is it presumably because uh, they figured out what's making the things crash and have fixed it? It's an ignorant question, I'm just wondering. Paul Flock and I actually discussed this looking at the UFO field as a whole. Mm-hmm. That it seemed that we had lots of really interesting cases in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, even into the 1970s with the with the uh, occupant wave of 1973. Had a lot of really interesting cases, and as we move beyond that, uh, the cases aren't aren't as detailed, aren't as exciting, aren't as interesting. And Carl, Carl, and I talked about that, and and the conclusion we drew was, or, or one of the conclusions was that they're not visiting that much anymore. They 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 came they conducted their research, search, they gathered their samples, they went home to analyze it. They haven't come back but, yet. Well, now, wait a minute. So, so what you're leaving out there, of course, is the extensively documented UFO flap in Mexico City during the 90s. Uh, you've yeah. got the Rendlesham case in 1980. Uh, you've got what appears to be for the last year and a half a, some sort of a flap going on in Argentina. I mean, uh, you know, I understand what you're saying. At the same time, uh, it appears that uh, the incident, the, the number of UFO sightings hasn't decreased significantly. Uh, you know, we see, like anything else, where you're plotting data, statistical data, we see ups and downs. Uh, but uh, perhaps what we see is things changing. I mean, for example, the abduction scenario, which doesn't really surface in a major way until... 
the 70s. And then all of a sudden, it seems like there's a huge wave of it. I mean, you forgot cattle mutilations, too. If you really want to throw all the, all the stuff in there, don't forget cattle mutilations and crop circles. Well, I, I'm a little more uh, ambivalent about uh, certainly the crop circle situation and issue. But I'm just thinking about UFO sightings, just UFO sightings. Um, you know, clearly there's a huge amount of ongoing activity. I mean, it doesn't look like whatever is looking at us has ceased. Again, I mean, I'm, I'm just, just, just the, the Mexico City wave of the 90s is fascinating. And also the fact that Mexico City, one of the most polluted places on the planet, if you were studying human civilization and culture, certainly that would be an interesting place to look at because of the incredible density of population and the pollution situation. I mean, if you're, if you're a cultural, cultural anthropologist, that's going to be of a huge amount of interest. Well, you forgot Teotihuacan, which is about 90 miles north of Mexico City, which I would find much more interesting, but that's just me. Please, but, elaborate. Well, Chris Lukowski did a study, a linear study of UFO sightings that he presented at the MUFON conference in Denver this last year. Mm -hmm. And what he, he saw was a decrease in the sightings overall. Doesn't mean they're all gone. Just is, is a decrease. And what what Carl and I were talking about was was a really interesting stuff where they're where they're on the ground where you where you're seeing you're seeing them up close. You're getting into you're getting some very very interesting cases. So it looked to us like there was the, 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 one of the ways to display explain this decline was that they had gone home, which is not to say that we're dealing with a single civilization or a single group of civilizations. It may be that somebody else has now discovered us as well you know we have an awful lot of data we have an awful lot of bad data uh, because of the the noise the signal ratio is, is very very large we've got an awful lot of noise out there and we've got to try to try to get through the noise I mean there's an awful lot of people who who still report Venus as a flying saucer sure and you would think in, in fact and, and this is really kind of funny because I was watching the news um, not that long ago, and they were talked about how you'd see these two lights go across the sky. It was the it was the space station and the shuttle or something following mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And 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 you, you know if you went out at between here, I think it was like eight ten and eight fifteen, you could see the thing fly over. So I went right. out and stood on my front porch and watched it fly over. It wasn't twenty minutes. I get a phone call from somebody says. I was just out of my driveway and I saw these two strange lights going across the sky and it was just incredible and it was, they were moving so fast and I said, yeah, it was the space shuttle and the, <laughs> and the space station, didn't you know that? I went out and looked at them for spe specifically, but had I, had I not known that, I might have been fooled by, by, the, by the case and the guy telling me he'd seen these two lights go over the sky. I mean, a very good sighting from, from one point of view, but one that has a, a legitimate explanation. Mm -hmm. So. You know, you know, and then Carl and I were just speculating about why we don't have the number of really interesting sightings that we used to have, and, and we we ignored the abduction phenomenon for a number of reasons, and we ignored the cat mutilations for a number of reasons, uh, but but we just don't seem to have a the number of sightings given given the Mexico City, given Argentina, given given the uh, Crawford Texas sightings for crying out loud or the continuation of the Phoenix Light sightings. But we don't seem to have the intensity, we don't seem to have the, the really interesting sightings that we had once before, and we were just wondering why that was. And that kind of feeds into the question of, of why 
the last really good crash that I see is 1967. I the the, the latest one I report on in the book was uh, July of 2009, and something fell into the water in Ottawa, Canada, and I and I. I wrote to Chris and asked him what he knew about it and he sent me some information about it. It sounds an awful lot like uh, some kind of meteoric event, but I don't I don't have an explanation. I don't have a really good explanation. I report what I have have in the book, but that's 2009. There was I, I don't know if you saw it on the internet, there was a marvelous thing on YouTube of a of a bolide going over uh, Grand Junction, Colorado from a police car video. And you see the thing streak in and explode and lights up the sky and it gets really, really bright for uh, uh, an instant and then it fades away really quick, which means the thing probably fell in Utah. Get out there with your metal detector and find find out where the thing fell. So, you know, that was just, yeah, we don't, I don't know why. It just, it just seemed to us that there was not a um, continuation of the really interesting sightings. And that was one of the explanations we came up for. Could be right, could be wrong. It was just something that, that, that we thought as, as we looked at this stuff, and it kind of fits into the, the question you're asking, why don't we have any crashes now? Well, maybe they got better, maybe there's just fewer of them. Well, th there is another possibility. And based on my experience growing up in South America, uh, what I can tell you is that I suspect there is a pretty large hole in the database of UFO sightings. Uh, because the sightings we tend to hear about are the ones that people talk about or where there, there's more than one witness and you've got this uh, triangulation of, of sightings where you can kind of point to something, sort of like the O'Hare situation where there were a number of people that came out and spoke about it, uh, a number of them anonymously. Uh, people don't want to be associated with this topic. They don't want to go on record. So I think in all of this, part of the problem in trying to analyze this uh, from a data research point of view, is that you're working with an incomplete data set. Uh, and there's, there's very likely, I would even suggest, a majority of sightings defined as 51% or more that are simply not reported. And, and the reason I know that is because I was part of one of those, a mass sighting of uh, a cigar-shaped craft emitting disks that surrounded it and then the whole thing disappeared, this thing does not exist. This sighting, which was involved hundreds, perhaps thousands of people, is not in any database anywhere. There's nothing on this. There's there somewhere in Caracas, in a microfiche catalog. There is there are front pages of a couple of papers that corroborate what I'm saying. I haven't had the opportunity to go down there and search them out, which is what I'd have to do. But the point I'm making is that when you're looking at this from uh, research point of view, I think it, it's it's probably safe to say that we're dealing with incomplete data, and 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 that's a huge problem in trying to analyze something as complex and as mysterious as this. I was going to say I'll add to your point, which is of course here in the United States we're very very American centric, mm -hmm. and 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 that we don't get good information from South America. We don't get good information from, from, from Europe. We don't get good information from Africa or, or Australia or Asia. But we, we see an awful lot. We, we see the information here in the United States, and it's only by accident, you might say, that we, we see something out of Brazil or we see something out of Argentina or we see something out of Chile. We, we, we don't really see uh, that information up here. So, so you're, making, you're making a very good point that well, we don't see all the information because of, of, of our... Uh, our, our purview, and, and I'll make another point, is that the reason you see 
I believe some waves, some flaps of UFO sightings is because you'll get one that gets a lot of attention and people who normally wouldn't say anything now A, feel more comfortable reporting it because there's other information out there and B, they know where to report it. So you'll get a sudden surge of sightings in a, in a location because of, of those factors as well. And, 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 and that, of course, skews the data. Even well, further. also, that's what they call a publicity flap, where the flap is not the outbreak of UFO activity, but the reporting of one significant case that inspires others to come forth. And, and in fact, the, the, best, the best example of that is the, is the Leveland sightings from 1957. If you look at the data uh, of the sighting reports, you find out that, that Leveland actually marked the peak of, of, uh, of the sightings. And they could could you please, for, for our listeners who don't know about that, Kevin, could you elaborate on that? Oh, my God, no. Uh, yes, I can. In November of 1957, there was a series of sightings around Leveland, Texas. The object was seen on the ground. It, it uh, stalled cars. Um, it was in the area for a, a number of an hours. So, so multiple witnesses, that sort of thing. The Air Force investigated, took most of the day to investigate it, said there were only three witnesses, and they thought it was the result of... Um, uh, thunderstorms in the area and let it go at that. Don Kehoe from the, the uh, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena in Washington said there were nine witnesses, and uh, so the Air Force was being disingenuous by, by saying there were only three. Both the Air Force and Kehoe were wrong. There were, I found witnesses at least 13 separate locations who reported the electromagnetic effects, the uh, stalling of the car engines, the dimming of the lights, the fading of the radio, that sort of thing. This was November of 19, 1957. The wave actually peaks on November 6th, which is four days later. It began in late September, carried on through December of 1957, but, but, but the point is um, you had that big sighting in Leveland, they got a lot of publicity, people knew about it, but that was not either the beginning of the wave nor the end of it, it sort of marked the peak of the wave. But those sightings were very interesting, but again, there's no crash, there was no crash involved there. Uh, I had done some research on it. Don Burlinson, who's a uh, researcher living in Roswell, New Mexico, is, and, and, and Leveland's like three hours away from, from Roswell, has done some work, and he, he talked to the uh, daughter of the sheriff and there was actually apparently a burned area that was found right after this but the air force uh, suggested that they really not talk about those sorts of things so that so some of the information may have been lost but but you had a, a ufo interacting with the environment with the electromagnetic effects you had multiple witnesses you had the possibility of a landing trace case which would have been multiple chains of evidence which had there been a proper scientific investigation in November of 1957, we might be having a wholly different discussion here. But everybody figured, well, the Air Force will look at it. They'll they'll determine what's going on. The Air Force didn't care. They were more interested in explaining it away than in finding out what happened. And uh, no one else did the proper analysis in 1957, so we allowed that one to get away from us. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 
2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Kevin Randall. He's author of a forthcoming book called Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, a history of famous incidents, conspiracies, and cover-ups. And we're extending that to a whole host of cases. So it comes back to this, and you kind of alluded to us before when you mentioned the amount of information that's come forth from Great Britain, from France. So what does the government know, if anything, about any of this? And I guess that would also assume whether or not they have the Roswell evidence. So do they know anything significant at this point that they're hiding from us? What do you think? If, 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 I'll ask you my opinion, and it's my opinion that Roswell was extraterrestrial in nature, which means the government covered it up, which means the government knows. government had the answer to the flying saucer mystery within two weeks of, of the Arnold sighting in, in June of 1947. I believe in 1947 they thought, given given the, the nature of, of military and governmental thinking in 1947, given the fact we'd just come out of World War II, that they needed to discover what had, what had fallen there, get some answers before they released the information into the public arena. Well, best case scenario, they could bury it, have an opportunity to exploit, back engineer the uh, material that they recovered. And, and take a great leap ahead of our competitors in the world at the time. So it made sense in 1947 for them to not come out with any explanation. So my my answer to you is, yeah, I believe the government knows exactly what what happened, and 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 has some answers that they have felt compelled to keep suppressed. If you ask me why in 2010 they would feel the, the necessity to keep this information suppressed, I couldn't answer that question because it seems to me. You look at the mindset of people in 1947, you look at the world environment in 1947, you look at the sophistication of people in 1947, and you compare it to 2010, you've got, in essence, a wholly different civilization. So I don't know why you would continue to suppress this information. It's not going to create any kind of panic. It's not going to cause a worldwide economic fiasco. It's not going to destroy worldwide religion. It's not going to destroy the oil industry. It's not going to do, to create free energy for everybody. I why not? If they have this advanced propulsion system and we get any clue at all as to what it's all about, that would certainly have implications. Yes, it certainly would. But what I'm saying is, it wouldn't it wouldn't destroy these things, uh, you know. And so I don't I don't understand the motivation for keeping it suppressed. Well, I, I the, the, don't understand. The, the, All I can tell you is, hmm. based on what I know and what I've seen, the documents I've seen, the research that I've conducted, they have a much better explanation, and it, and it's a layered explanation. I think the guy that went to Leveland, who was a an NCO, a sergeant, and I don't know how how senior NCO he was, he, his mission was not really to investigate the case. His mission was to find a, an explanation that would be suitable to his bosses and go home. 
He was not interested in, in finding it in the Air Force purview. If the witness was not interviewed by an Air Force investigator, the witness didn't exist. And so they could say with all canter, well, there's only three witnesses. Well, that's all they talked to. Therefore, there are only three witnesses. I don't know what precipitated this, this idea of, of, of perpetuating the cover-up. I can just tell you that, that it's there, and we can, port, we, we can point to documentation that proves there's a cover-up. You can say, well, it doesn't prove it's extraterrestrial, and I'll, and I'll agree with you wholeheartedly. But there is a cover-up there. There's a cover-up of something, and I don't know why it continues today, why it persists today. Well, so, so along those lines, Kevin, and, and I don't want to seem argumentative with you because I think we're all looking for the same thing. We're looking for answers. Um, I, I think part of the problem with human beings is that we get caught in certain modalities of thought. I, I'm certainly uh, pff, uh, guilty of that all the time. And, uh, uh, I, you know, humans tend to filter out what they don't want to hear. Uh, they look for confirmation of their core beliefs. Uh, we don't want to deal with things that fly in the face of what our beliefs are, whatever those beliefs might be. The whole idea of, and this brings us, of course, to this ugly topic of disclosure, where there is this sense you have certain people that believe that they know the nature of what the secret is, and they just want that secret released. But just for argument's sake, I mean, if you've got a situation where, and, and I'm not saying this is the case, I'm just throwing this out because you look at a situation and you try to basically formulate an idea of what's going on based on what the evidence is, based on what you see, not just tangible evidence, but things like behavior. So you, you've got this, this military or some faction within the military of ours that basically is making believe that this is all just nonsense to the public. Meanwhile, it appears that behind closed doors, they take this very seriously. Um, so, so with that understanding, that if we can agree upon that reality, I mean, maybe the nature of what has been discovered is such that perhaps, just perhaps, they found something out that would suggest to them that if they release that information, if, they, if, if indeed they know something significant that maybe doesn't fall into the categories that we'd like to think ahead of time that information would fall into, that indeed there might be some serious global repercussions. So I'll just give you one example. And again, not saying, okay, we know that abductions are real or anything, but there certainly seems to be an undercurrent of interest in human beings and our and and our genetics that seems to be a, a fairly consistent thing that we see in, in in all of the abduction reports and i'm just even discounting the ones that are silly because we've had on this show people who say they're abductees and their stories are highly compelling uh their their behavior uh, their behavioral responses to certain questions would indicate that there's real trauma there so what happens if the government comes out and says all right here's the deal we know that uh, these things have been genetically manipulating us. In fact, it appears that they created us. Well, now, it, if they say that, you better believe there's going to be a huge backlash from the religious communities of this earth, which are in the majority. I mean, I don't, I don't need to tell anybody who lives in the United States the power of the religious right. It's significant. So, I mean, if you, if you came out with a piece of information like that, I mean, man, go to South America where the, the Catholic Church is powerful in a way that it hasn't been powerful in the States in many years. Uh, you go down there, tell people, oh, you know what? Human beings, looks like we're a genetic experiment. 
we're not children of God. This is going to create a, a serious, serious situation. And, and I think that when we talk about the idea that we're acclimated to these ideas, the problem is we're acclimated to a certain set of ideas. If disclosure were to reveal information that doesn't fit within those categories, those preconceived, predigested categories, there's no way to tell how people would react. There's, there, and in fact, there's a lot of reason to believe that there would be a problem. And I think that the government at that point says, what benefit is there for us to reveal what we know? And apparently, uh, they've come to the conclusion that there is no benefit. Hence, the reason that they've acknowledged nothing, they've admitted to nothing, and there doesn't seem to be any change in that policy. End of lecture. <laughs> <laughs> and a fine lecture it was, too. Well, no, as a but, matter of fact, he's going to charge $100,000. He go. wants to get the same amount of money for his lecture as Sarah Palin collects. <sighs> yeah, let's not go there. Yeah, let's please not go there. We but, went. But, but, but see, again, in discussing this yeah, stuff, Kevin, I mean, yeah, you know, you see what I'm saying, right? You get what I'm getting yeah. at. And my response, my response would be be very simplistic, which, which if, of course, if what you say is correct, then yes, there would be an, an extreme backlash. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at it from the point of view that, I, well, I, I don't believe that's the situation. Ergo, I can think of nothing based on my research that would would lead us in that direction. But yes, I, I've heard those arguments and I've, I've seen that information that, that the human race was genetically altered, the, the, the genetics were altered 25,000 years ago and, and 125,000 years ago to put us on the course to reach humanity, if you will. I, I've heard that. And if, the, and if they had, had the evidence for that, then yes, there would be a tremendous backlash. The other The other thing you could say is if the energy source for the UFO was something that you could create out of tin cans and uh, fiberglass that anybody with, with a buck and a quarter could go down and create an, a way of, uh, build a way of creating energy that, that simply to pile, power the house or whatever. Well, yes, you're going to have, you're going to have a, a tremendous impact on the energy industry. Yes, I, I get that, but I don't see where the evidence suggests that's where we're going to go. You might be, you might be right. You could be exactly right, but... I guess the point I'm making is that in this sandbox, all anybody has are theories. And I think that the problem is that that people get vested in a specific uh, branch of research. And and ultimately, that that then doesn't become a search for understanding. It becomes a search to protect one's belief system. Well, and Uh, and I just just run into a, a very good example of that. If you looked at National Geographic two months ago, they did a story about "Are We Alone?" Mm, right. They, they yep. were suggesting they were suggesting that we look at M-class stars for for planets, Earth-like planets. If you go back to the Bonnie and Betty Hill abduction and the star map, you had Marjorie Fish doing that Herculean test of of uh, trying to determine where the aliens came from based on Betty Hill's hypnotically. Uh, regressed memory of the star map that she saw in her dream. She said that she had eliminated red dwarfs because there was nothing of interest at what red dwarfs, and if she used those in her, her project, there were just too many of them. I think seven out of the ten stars closest to the Earth are red dwarfs, the sun not, in, not included. Thank goodness. So now, we're, now we're learning that there may be planetary systems around red, red dwarfs, that the so-called super-Earths may be prevalent around red dwarfs, and that throws that information into a cocked hat. I mean, her 
um, assumption that there would be nothing of, of, of interest around red dwarfs has now been challenged by our current science. How many times now in the last month and a half have people, and, and, and I've gotten some email on this, people been attacked for suggesting that the Hill star map might be wrong? Or the, the, the fish interpretation of the Hill star map might be wrong based on this premise that there's nothing of interest around red dwarfs. This, what this does is validate in a very, very narrow range what you've just been saying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that we're not looking at, we're not looking at it, well gee, maybe we should refine the, the, um, uh, search now based on what we, we know about red dwarfs. It's, no, Zeta 1, Zeta Reticuli is where some of the grays are coming from. That's it. End of discussion. We're not going to go any further than that. Not that this information may be wrong. This information may be changed based on a, a change in our current um, understanding of, of our portion of the galaxy. It's, you know, Zeta 1, Zeta Reticuli are it. End of discussion. Yeah, the thing I always worry about when it comes to the case involving Barney and Betty Hill, this star map, this image, Something that is suspicious is that it seems like it was something put up there for their benefit. Because I would think that if an intelligent race communicates with us and you say, well, where are you from? They would try to convey the message. If they want to even convey it, they may want to mislead us. Who knows? Right. You're assuming they're telling the truth. And, well, and, let's, and, let's, yeah. let's assume they're telling the truth. Why? But there, there are at least four interpretations of the Hill map that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. But the one that gets the publicity is the the fish interpretation. In in reading about this topic in a sincere, concerted way for the last over four years now, which scares me, Gene. Um, and having been someone who who has uh, who's witnessed these things, in some cases closer than I'd like. The word that keeps coming up in my mind, guys, is is deception. And what we see is is there's a huge amount of deception regarding this topic on the part of whatever or whoever it is inside of our government military that is is sitting on information, whether or not they're sitting on they're sitting on any understanding of that information, that's up for grabs. But I I think it's pretty clear personally that they're sitting on some amount of information, um, and they're being deceptive about what they have. They're being deceptive about what it is. Uh, if if we can be deceptive like that. Then, and I'm not trying to, 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 to assign human motivations to non-human entities, but certainly any being that was dealing with us that could look into our minds. And what does seem pretty clear is that, and again, even if you discount the vast majority of reports along these lines, there definitely seems to be some reality that, uh, these, whatever these beings are, wherever they're from, it would appear that they can exert a certain amount of psychic control over humans when they want to. Uh, they can look into our minds when they want to. And, and to me, that suggests, and if you don't even need that, forget that. Uh, look at human uh, television transmissions for the past 50 years. Any, any reasonably intelligent civilization is going to look at that and say, man, these creatures are addicted to deception and lying. I think at that point, if you were coming here to, to interact with us, You'd be cognizant of that fact, and you would utilize it to your advantage if you are even reasonably intelligent. So, so the problem I have with, with that issue about B- Betty Hill being shown information um, and assuming that that is correct information, I, I, I personally see no reason to believe that. I think that there's a lot of reasons to believe that there's a very high degree of deception going on on both sides. And, and at that point, you're, you're again... 
you're working not only with incomplete data sets, but erroneous data sets or uh, uh, data sets designed to m mislead a researcher. And certainly, guys, there's no lack of situations where people who do research in this field are misled, Kevin. I mean, you know, this is every well, UFO case you want to look at, right? There's some I can't at some think point. Of anybody who's ever misled me, Frank Hoffman, Glenn Dennis. <laughs> well, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm going to be nice this episode. I don't want to bring up names, but maybe there's a person or two in that was involved with you in the past that maybe wasn't completely honest with you. Uh, it's certainly possible, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And, if we're, right. and if we're looking at the star map, first of all, it apparently is a two dimensional representation. Mm -hmm. Eddie Hill originally remembered it in a dream and then drew it under hypnosis. So we, 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 we've got a number of real problems to begin with. Absolutely. Getting to the yes. star map. Right. Then we have Marjorie Fish making an assumption, which at the time seemed to be a logical assumption, mm -hmm. which was to eliminate the red dwarfs, uh, the M-class stars, because of their uh, numbers, uh, especially around, around our section of the galaxy, which we now scientifically realize may have been an invalid assumption which negates, to some extent, that one interpretation of the Hill map. Betty Hill had a different interpretation. A guy named Attenberg had, a, had an interpretation, and a fellow in Germany suggested that what she was shown was, in fact, the positions of the planets of the solar system at the time she was abducted, which is, still, which is a fourth uh, interpretation, which is kind of an interesting interpretation of it. So we end up accepting... Fish's idea that the two main stars in the interpretation are Zeta-1, Zeta-2 reticuli, and that happens to be their home world. I see nothing to suggest that's a valid assumption to even begin with. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. Speaking of assumptions, I assume we have Kevin D. Randall. I assume also he has a forthcoming book coming out called <laughs> Crash. When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. And we focused on a whole bunch of stuff, such as what we know and what we don't know, and getting to the star map. I guess being from Zeta Reticuli, that's a romantic concept. Is that one of the reasons why it's accepted? I think it's accepted because it offers 
bit of legitimacy to, to the study of UFOs. Here is something concrete we can point to. Here is, here is, here is this map, and we've been able to identify where they come from, so we can now say that some of the, some of the UFOs, some of the alien visitors come from Zeta-1 or Zeta-2 reticuli. And, and I think, I think it, it's, a, it's a search for uh, a legitimacy that we don't have because we, we can't point to, well, here's an alien body, here's a piece of debris that actually comes from a flying saucer. And the one thing that's always frightened me is we get an actual real live piece of a flying saucer and we haven't analyzed and they say, yeah, it's aluminum. You know, there's nothing to distinguish it from terrestrially manufactured aluminum. It's it's real. It's a real flat piece of a flying saucer, but there's nothing to prove that it came came from an extraterrestrial source. And so, I, I think when we look at those things and we latch onto those sorts of things, we do so because this provides us with a bit of that concrete that's missing from other aspects of the UFO investigation, of the, UFO, the study of UFOs. You know, I also have another problem with the Barney and Betty Hill incident, which I've said several times. And, of course, people like Stan Friedman will shout me down. But I always go back to the reports about government mind control experiments, especially in the 50s and 60s. Consider that the Hills were friends with people at a local military base and I think you know if the government wanted to see do a little testing about human reactions if they were contacted by alien beings maybe these people would be associated with the right profile to be victims of this kind of thing and there is no real case there it was all government deception a test well and we can look at it from another point of view and it's something that Bud Hopkins has said that there are no traditional sci-fi gods and demons to account for the abduction phenomenon. But if we look at the history of science fiction and the history of science fiction movies, we can find lots and lots of examples of, of alien abduction in the literature and in the movies, in, including one of the worst movies ever made, Killers from Space. And, and what do we have in that? We've got big-eyed aliens. We've got the mind control. We've got them performing an experiment on on Peter Graves' body, he's laid out on a table like you see in some of the abductees talk about. He's laid out on this table, and he's actually shown his own heart as they've removed it and they've put it back in. So you've got many of the elements of the abduction phenomena in this 1953 movie. You've got covers from science fiction magazines in the 30s where they show abductions and, 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 and big-eyed aliens. And, and, and so there, there is this long history of this kind of a phenomenon built into not only science fiction, but other, other elements of, of the literature. Well, sure. Fairies and elves go back hundreds of years. Exactly. exactly. Sure. The incubus and the succubus. Uh, and, and you talk about all of those sorts of things. You can talk about the, the genetic or the, the, the collecting of genetic material by the incubus and the succubus going back in, into the annals of the Catholic Church, for crying mm -hmm, out loud. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and so you've, you've got all of that sort of stuff going on with... Um, with, with the UFO phenomenon, so we're, we're kind of casting around for for explanations, but we don't want to look at. Uh, uh, Russ Estes, Bill Cohn, and I did a book called The Abduction uh, Enigma in 1997, and we were vilified for the book, and people understood misunderstood the mission of the book. It was it was to say basically, you know, you've done case studies of, of abductees for 20 years, we got it. Now let's figure out. How to how to to enhance and advance our research, and nothing nothing has changed since that book was published. We, it, we're doing the same research into the abduction phenomena today that we were doing 
10 years ago, 15 years ago, we're not advancing the research. We're getting nowhere. We're putting people under hypnotic regression. We're gathering the same sorts of stories. We have John Mack arguing with um, David Jacobs, arguing with Bud Hopkins about what's really going on. And Mack said something that was very, very interesting. He said it was interesting how the abductees seem to align themselves with the researcher who's opinions of the abduction kind of followed what they believed. In other words, if you believed in cold calculating aliens, you ended up at Bud Hopkins. If you believed in aliens with an Eastern philosophy, you ended up with John Mack. And if you believed in hybrids, you ended up with, with David Jacobs. Mack never seemed to want to turn this around and saying, well, gee, maybe, maybe it's the researcher who is drawing out of their abductees exactly what they want to hear and discounting everything else. And, and so what you say about the paradigm being established and nobody wanting to look beyond their own personal paradigm is exactly right. We cannot get beyond that in UFO research. If I say the Betty Hill star map is useless, Stan Friedman yells at me. If I suggest that, that there's a correlation between abductees and the homosexual population, they're overrepresented in the abductee population, I'm yelled at for being a homophobe even though that's where the data took us. That's what it showed us. Well, is there an explanation for that? Maybe, maybe not. Have we looked at blood types? Have we looked at eye color? Have we looked at college education? All factors that might tell us something about the abduction phenomena, but we don't do those sorts of surveys. Instead, we do the same sort of thing that we did 20 years ago, and we get nowhere. Let me just, I just throw this out for discussion for a moment. Because, Kevin, what you just said is really fascinating, that people basically are in an irrational way, perhaps, sort of following their theories and not looking at the data. Now, look, humans tend to do this, right? Confirmation bias is a well-known, not totally understood mechanism, but pretty well recognized as playing into anybody's perception of reality. There, there are some of us, though, who wonder about the possibility of, of something a little odder going on. Just something a little weirder. And, and again, not to, to go off into odd directions with this conversation, but how can one not go off in an odd direction when talking about one of the oddest subject matters that we know of? And so, so the problem is I understand that there is this desire to keep things in the, uh, to quote uh, uh, Stan, the nuts and bolts box. I totally understand that. That's what the guy is used to dealing with. That's what he understands the world in, in those terms. But it, it would appear on many levels that what's going on here is something that seems to defy in many ways the expectations that we would have of this thing if it was a mere nuts and bolts phenomenon. And this is where I think things get very odd for people because it's almost as if everybody chooses their section, their kind of specialty, their vertical area of interest, and they pursue that. Because that's what humans are. Humans are very good at specializing in things. Me personally, I've always been a generalist. I like to know a lot of, a, a, a lot about a lot of different things, and I've, and it's, I've always hesitated to over-specialize. Because I think that when you, you over-specialize, basically you lose the big picture. And in many ways, I think that's what's happened to this field. I think that there's been enough time that people have been able to spend enough time on this where they do get very deeply vested in an, in an area of research. I mean, Stan Friedman is the perfect example of this. And I'm not trying to take away the man's credibility in any way. He's an extremely knowledgeable, extremely intelligent, very well-spoken person who puts forward very compelling arguments. 
at the same time, uh, Stan will, with the wave of a hand, discount an entire chunk of, of information. And, and the same way that you're kind of saying that the abduction researchers tend to sort of be involved with the people who would corroborate what they think is going on. Though I have to tell you, my dealings with Bud Hopkins, uh, I've seen a lot of evidence that would suggest that that's not the case at all. I've had personal dealings with him, and, and, and that doesn't seem to be the way he works. At least that's just my opinion. But the, the, the point I'm making here is that uh, it, it's very difficult to supersede or to sort of work around what is our, our, our kind of base human nature, which is to sort of pick an area, pick an answer, and then basically try to fight to get to that answer no matter what you have to do to get to that answer. Instead of like like you've just said, you know, look at all of the, the evidence and see where that takes you. Ultimately, I think that's the only reasonable way to approach this. Anything and, else and you know the best example the best example of that is suggest some abductions are the result of sleep paralysis. Mm -hmm. And see what kind of firestorm that brings down on you. Doesn't mean that all of them are, but but if you take a look at the symptomology of of sleep paralysis, it's exactly the same as alien abduction. And until you can separate those two, then you have a real problem with your abduction research. Yeah. But the, the abduction researchers won't even listen to that. They, they say, well, people were awake when they were abducted, so it can't be sleep paralysis. Well, actually, there's something called cataplexy, which is sleep paralysis when you're wide awake, but that's another whole argument. But, but the point is, well, just because one person was awake when they were abducted and, and, and it can't be sleep paralysis doesn't mean that there wasn't another case where it was, in fact, sleep paralysis. And they will not listen to any kind of, of, of an explanation like that. They just reject it out of hand. I guess we all tend to reject out of hand the things that we just uh, don't believe have any veracity. Uh, certainly, Gene and I can be accused of doing that all the time. Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, I can hear it coming now. I hear the undercurrents in our forums, in our emails. Kevin, we don't have much time left, but I'd like you to take a couple of minutes telling us about your forthcoming book about crashes called Crash. <laughs> and that pretty well explains it right there. Okay, what well, that's been a great show. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I took a look at the long list of UFO crashes and, and figured, as, as I've said before, that there couldn't possibly be 300 crashes in the last 50 years or 60 years. So I, I took a look at it, but I went back and I looked at some of the stuff that happened in the Middle Ages and some of the stuff that happened with the airship of 1897 and, and things that have been labeled crashes uh, in other, other arenas and took a look at all of that sort of stuff and, and put together a compendium that begins with sighting in France or crash in France in 840. AD and ends up with the crash, as I mentioned earlier, in Ottawa, Canada, in May of 2009. So we, we take a look at long look at stuff. And yes, we look at Roswell, and yes, we look at Kecksburg, and yes, we look at uh, Shag Harbor, but we look at some of the other stuff. Uh, we look at the Cape Girardeau case from 1941, which is kind of interesting, but it's basically single witness. But uh, Charlotte Mann seems to be a very down-to-earth lady. And, and but, but of course, what she's, what she's reporting and what she sent to Len Stringfield is, in essence, second-hand information that she got from her father, but we look at a wide variety of cases, and we, we look at a, many of them in depth, so we get an idea. We talk briefly, we, we look at the um, Maury Island case in depth, which really isn't a crash, but but has been listed on some, put on some of the lists, so I looked at it in depth. So it's a, a compendium of that, and it's a, a, a look of what I've found in my research at, uh, in a lot of different arenas. All right, this book's coming out sometime this spring. 
Yes, I don't. I don't have an exact release date. We're in the final stages of getting everything wrapped up, and it'll uh, should be available all over the place. And of course, I'll announce it on my blog when it does come out. Tell our listeners where to find your blog. The easiest way is probably type a different perspective into your search engine or a different perspective, Kevin Randall, and you'll you'll get to it that way. But it's at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Yeah. A different perspective, and we look at a lot of different things. And by the way, we have a secret method. If you go to theparacast.com and you click on on the name Kevin D. Randall, you go there magically. And yeah. it is a most excellent blog, by the way. Well, thank you. I appreciate just that. F, just, just my opinion on that. Some Sports. fascinating stuff, by the way, about the MJ-12 documents and also about the Unholy 13, and that could be a whole other show that we didn't have time to do today. If you want to see hate, hate storm fall down, suggest that MJ-12 might be focused. I think you just did. <laughs> the book is called Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups by Kevin D. Randall. Thanks for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thanks, Kevin. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.